2: On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time.
1: For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons.
2: We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont, on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished.
1: Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases.
2: Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing so well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing great. We have a new friend on, at least new to the podcast Airwaves. We've known Erin via Twitter and through the true crime community on Twitter for a while now, and she's written a blog for PIs for the Missing about missing Diane Teresa Francis
1: is such a cool person because she told us some of the things that she's been through in her life and uh, and how she is really focusing part of her life on this uh, personal investigation of, of these missing people. And Diane Francis is one that she really dug deep into. But um, I just want to give a shout-out to her. She's a cancer survivor, and she is a mom, and she's got her shit together. So we like that. So keep up the good work, Aaron especially um, the good work that you've done with Diane Francis. Uh,
2: Anyone who
1: is familiar with this case knows how frustrating this one truly
2: is. It really is. Diane Francis has been missing since November 27th, 2005, yet she wasn't reported missing till 2015, which is a really weird detail that we get into in the episode. I'm not sure that I can recall a case quite like that with, with that detail.
1: It is truly inexplicable that that would go so long without a report of her being missing. And the person who reported her missing was an ex-boyfriend who seemed to have his memory jogged after being talked to by the police about his missing neighbor, who he had no connection with uh, as far as that that's concerned. That was a totally different situation. But it seems like that's what jogged his memory about Diane. Um, so you'll hear the surprise in our voice. I didn't know about that until Aaron uh brought it up, and you'll 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 hear us trying to like work that one out, but that's one of the many reasons why this case is so frustrating.
2: Diane was thirty seven at the time of her disappearance. she's five three one hundred to one hundred twenty pounds. She's missing from Jacksonville, Florida. she's a Caucasian female with blonde brown hair brown slash hazel eyes and she has a tattoo of a heart on her left calf and a tattoo of the letters jt on her right arm and her ears are pierced
1: and anybody with information about diane's disappearance please contact the palm beach county sheriff's office at 561-688-3000 and this information is coming to us from aaron and from the charlie project.org
2: and her daughter runs a Facebook page at Finding Diane Francis. So you can follow that. There's a link in the show notes. And Erin, our guest today, does a podcast as well. And you can find her work at SippingOnSomeCrime.com. And that is also the name of her podcast, Sipping on Some Crime. And you can follow her on Twitter at Some Sipping. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Make sure to check out Erin's podcast. She did a deep dive on Diane Francis's case. I think she did three episodes, so make sure to go check those out. Follow us on social media at MissingCSM. And
1: be sure to check out all of our fine shows at MissingCSM.com. And while you're at it, just swing over to investigationsforthemissing.org.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Erin Reed. How are you today?
0: Good. How are you guys?
1: We really couldn't be better. This is a a great moment for for all of us. You have been uh, involved with, I guess, the community of everything we've been doing for so long. And you've recently worked with Investigations for the Missing. Um, You've written a wonderful blog post on Missing Diane Francis. Uh, Which is incredible, and that's what we're going to talk to you about today. But excellent, welcome to the show. Uh, What do you do? What do you do during your day?
0: I'm a stay at home mom. That's that's my life. My my kid, anything she wants, everything she needs. That's that's. I'm on call 24 seven for someone that's eight. Like the hardest boss I've ever had in my life.
1: Well, no, I was just going to say that is one of the hardest jobs you could ever have in your life. I I was talking to some of my friends over Zoom and they were talking about when schools were going to open again and i almost got emotional cuz i was like guys you guys are and and i mean guys in the general sense like there were guys Robbie. and and women there uh, but i was just i was like you you work so hard at your at at this job of being a parent and you, everyone everyone who was a parent over the past year has stepped up big time i mean they they became a parent and i was like i was like wow that is incredible to to witness how people are so resilient and and I I feel like it kind of almost became a cliche like a stay-at-home mom was almost like watching soap operas and you know but that is so wrong (laughs) it's such a cliche (laughs) yeah so so I hate that it took a pandemic to like really bring that to at least the forefront in my mind but uh if I if I was religious I'd say god bless you but tip of the cap to you
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's a whole new world, especially with the pandemic. It's it's crazy, but we make do. At least you know they make them cute. So, <laughs> <It's beautiful. laughs>
2: and you've got a website, a blog, and a podcast, and it's called Sipping on Some Crime. Tell us about this.
0: Um, so I was actually I have a lot of health issues. Always have since I was small. I have heart issues. I had a stroke. Um, I had breast cancer, and I was in a really just. Um, home all the time, really dark place. And I heard the Alyssa Turney case, and there was something about that. It's like Alyssa was knocking on my shoulder, like, "Hey, this is what you should be doing. Like, with all of that focus and all that energy you have, take it and put it into this. Like, you've always loved, you know, uh, missing and murdered, and you've always felt for these cases. Why don't you actually do something about it?" So I reached out to Sarah and I said, "Hey, can I write this proposal for Alyssa?" just that you could take to Crime Con and show them like, can I just have some, you know, if, is it okay if I have some information on her and I write about her and she said, go for it. And it just went from there.
1: Wow. That's, that's uh, impressive. I, I, again, tip of the cap to you, you um, survived uh, breast cancer. Yep. And for you and a stroke.
0: Thank you. Stro- yep. Wow. And it, and I, I mean, it just makes you, stop and look at your life and go, what is important to me? Like, what do I want to do on this earth before it is your time? You know, what do you want to do? And I want it to do something good. I've always loved to help people. I wanted to be a marriage counselor for a long time. I really like that. Just if I can solve a problem and I can make someone else's day better, I'm drawn to that. Um, super drawn to broken people too. I like love to come in and say, Hey, how can I fix this? What can I do? Tell me your story. And I just wanted to be able to help people. And I felt like no one was saying Alyssa's name. And how did I not know this case? And it just angered me that it had taken so long for me to even hear about it. And I lived in that state for five years. So I was like, I just got angry. And I took that anger and I tried to put it into something good.
1: I and mean, you're also a uh, web designer. Apparently your website is really nice. Sippingonsomecrime.com. Thank Very you. Very well organized and... Um, broken out really well and if you want to look at any one of these uh missing persons or unsolved cases that that you've researched it's very easy you just simply scroll down it's all broken out really nicely and there's no frills uh other than a very comforting uh color scheme and <laughs> yeah, um nice yeah and <laughs> yeah it's exactly what you want if you want some uh resource for for some good information
0: I wanted it easy to find because I want it. To, I want the case names to highlight. I want the victims to be highlighted. I want them to be the first thing on your mind when you come. Um, most of my stories you'll find I barely talk about the suspects or I don't go into their past, their history. I go into how they're involved and I leave it at that. I don't really like to give them attention because I don't feel like they deserve it.
2: Okay. But who does need the attention are the missing people and, of course, the victims. And you've done quite a deep dive on the disappearance of Diane Francis. Can you tell us a little bit about this case and why you chose to dive deep into this one?
0: Definitely. Um, Actually, comes back to, of course, Sarah Turney. Uh, so we went out and we met out at Crime Junkie. She was going to one of the shows in Phoenix and I messaged her and I said, oh, my God, we're going to the same show. Let's meet up for um, drinks afterwards, dinner. And she said, yeah, I'm actually going to meet with two other girls. Why don't you come on over and we'll meet up afterwards? So we meet up after the show and there's this gorgeous, stunning girl. I don't know if you've all seen pictures of Sherry's daughter, but she's breathtaking. And she's standing next to Sarah and she introduces herself and we go sit down to dinner and we're just talking. She's like, oh yeah, my mom's missing. And I'm like, wait, what? And she's like, yeah, she's missing and no one's, you know, has an official report other than my, uh, the boyfriend who put it in and no one's taking me seriously and nobody will cover my story and nobody will listen to me. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm full ears. I don't have a huge production. I don't have a huge website, but I will dive into this with you and we will figure out how to tell the story. And she said, well, the problem is every time she presents it, there's no blueprint to it. It's so jumbled. It's such a mess. She doesn't know how to present it. I said, you know what? I'll give you the blueprint and hopefully other people will take it from there.
2: Interesting. Okay. So you started working with Sherry and that led you to some investigating.
0: We decided to just take the approach of she already had the website, uh, Facebook for her mom that wasn't getting much attention, but we decided to open it more like let's put some more facts, information, let's put pictures, let's put storylines, let's put things that are going to draw people to go, well, I want to know more about her. Because it's the only way that we're going to get people actively interested in the story. And once you get that, you start getting all these people that want to help. And we were, we're, we're willing to take any help we can get at the beginning. And we got so many people that poured in. She had people that used to know her mom growing up that started calling and messaging her and letting us know about who she was when she was a child. Uh, people that had seen her in her early 20s, 30s. I mean, we had people through her whole life start messaging us.
1: How do you uh, start processing this? Because I feel like this happened really quickly.
0: Very quickly. It was, And it was so much. So much came in. We're like, the thing about Diane's story that I think is the hardest for people to understand is we're trying to find somebody that we don't know really anything about. So we only know the stories from other people. So Sherry and Jessica, her daughters, don't know their mother. Their mother was taken from them when they were super young. You know, they were placed into state custody. And before that, they were constantly pulled in and out of the home. So they only have a picture of a small picture of their mother. And now you have this person that's missing, but you know nothing about them. So how do you begin to look for them when you don't even know who they are? So we had to spend, we spent about six months just getting to know who Diane was. Like, where did she come from? What was her relationship with her parents? How did she get down this road of addiction? how did she get down this road to where she turned to prostitution how did she put herself in these situations why was she here
1: and why was that important for you to figure out who she was and and why she was in that state instead of i guess jumping more into where was she last seen you know, who's, who's the boyfriend, who's the husband, the, the typical sort of check boxes that you want to, that you want to take care of. Was that your first intention was like, in order to figure out the mystery of this, I have to figure out the person.
0: Exactly. It was like a two part. So how do I know where she went? How can I even begin to assume what could have happened to her, or where she went? If I don't know who she was, if I don't know her, what she typically does in a day, uh, how she would handle emotions, how she would feel, why did she turn to addiction? Uh, How did this addiction evolve? What was the addiction? How did we turn to prostitution? Because addiction and prostitution right there make you vulnerable. It makes you so vulnerable in society. And society has such a disgust when it comes to addiction or prostitution. We find a quick way to go, well, that's not a person. They deserved it. They put themselves in that situation. And so I wanted to humanize her first. I wanted you to fall in love with the Diane that I fell in love with when Sherry was telling me about her when she was a child. Her, you know, she always said she had two moms, the sober mom and the addicted mom. And she said, the sober mom is the kind of mom that will make you look for someone till the end of the earth. And I wanted people to know that Diane.
2: That's great. And can you tell us a little bit about Diane's personality? Maybe what you've learned from Sherry?
0: So Diane was, I guess, the girl that walked in the room. She lit up the room. She was, uh, Sherry and Jessica both say she is the funniest person that you would ever meet. She was constantly cracking jokes, always had a smile. Um, She always tried to make everything magical for her kids. She said one year, like they, for Christmas, they wrapped the entire uh, room up like Christmas wrap and the doors up like Christmas wrap and have them bust through all the Christmas wrap doors to get to their presents, which were these, big, bright Barbie pink Jeeps that they could drive around the house in the backyard. And her mom would spend every ounce of money to get their hair done, their clothes done. That was something they did together. They got cute outfits together. They, she dressed them like twins almost, even though they're about a year and a half apart. Um, her girls were her world. She wanted to do everything she could for them until that addiction would slip in. And then she would lose that part of her world.
2: How old was Sherry when Diane went missing?
0: she was in foster care. Sherry and Jessica were both in foster care around the age fully, uh, 11 and I think 13. So they were fully in foster care at that time. But before that, they had already been in and out of foster care or homes at the time. So mom would get them, mom would have them, mom would do good for a few months, mom would uh, fall off the, the wagon, as they say, mom would go to rehab, they would go to a family member or short term foster care, mom would do the program, mom would come back, and they would be together again. And so that's kind of been their whole the only cycle she knows. So but fully disappeared, the state terminated her rights when they were 11 and 13, I believe.
2: Okay, and how is there this discrepancy? So Diane wasn't officially considered missing until 2015, even though she went missing in 2005. Can you explain a little bit about this?
0: So that one's kind of crazy. So the girls come out of foster care in 2003. So they're out of foster care. They finally aged out of the system. They go back to their family and they're like, you know, where's mom? We haven't seen her. And they said, you know, we haven't seen her in a few years. That's kind of just the short answer that they give her. I give everybody we haven't seen her in a few years. Not that they haven't seen her since 2005. Not that they haven't had a phone call from her since 2006. Just, you know, we haven't seen them in a few years. So we're already in 2013. So the girls are like, okay, well, we'll mom will show up. She always shows up. She'll do the program. She'll show up. So they wait and they keep asking these questions and the family just keeps saying, well, there was a phone call and she said she needed help. We believe it was sometime in 2006, uh, 2006, that she was very sick. She needed help, but you know, we called that number back and it was disconnected and we haven't heard from her and we had some buddies look for her, but they couldn't find anything. So we just kind of let it be. And it kind of took them two years to really tell them, like, we just haven't been looking for her because we can't emotionally deal with it because Diane comes in. She, you know, says she's going to be here. She's going to do what she's supposed to do. She's going to work the program. And then here she is again, messing up and they just, they can't deal with it anymore. So they've stopped searching for her and they just don't explain this to the girls. So the girls finally figure out like, look, nobody's looking for her. So Sherry's like, I'm going to start looking for her and figure out what's going on. And that is when Sherry comes across the, in May, 2015, the police report from John Boggs stating that he picked up the phone one day and called in the local police department. I believe it's the Palm Bay police department and said, I need to report my girlfriend missing. I was like a stepdad to her kids. And they go, okay, when was the last time you saw her? He goes, 2005. And they're like, And the officer didn't blink. He didn't. He just said, "Okay, I'll take down the report. He didn't continue to ask questions. This is the the shortest report. Just man calls in, says that his girl hasn't seen his girlfriend since 2005. This is she was last seen in Jacksonville, uh, Florida. That's the report. Like it's no question. As an officer, you had no questions about that.
1: And they're sure that this was actually her her boyfriend at the time.
0: That was her, um, and he wasn't even dating her at the time. He just says, this is this was my ex-girlfriend. And I was like a stepdad to her kids. That's the whole report. And at the time, she's actually was the last known person that we know she was with was another man named Foreman who is friends with Boggs. It's kind of a whole messed up jumble thing, how they all are together. Um, it's kind of like she bounced from Boggs to Foreman to, to this other man to Boggs to Foreman. It was... Kind of a triangle mess.
1: But it was confirmed that it was actually Boggs that called.
0: Yeah, it was confirmed that it was actually Boggs that called. Um, And what was interesting is it was easy to confirm it was him because just a few days before he was interviewed on a national or on a local television station because his neighbor and friend had suddenly gone missing and the police were there canvassing that neighborhood.
1: How long before?
0: Like two or three days.
1: So so that's what maybe he, he was like, you know what? My ex-girlfriend went missing. Maybe I should call that in.
0: I think it's the only thing we can like tie to. It's literally two to three days before because we can't tell based on the news clip. And now we can't find it, of course, which is the hardest part. We searched everywhere for that news clip. I think it's Action Jackson News. Um, but they interview him. They're like, oh, you know, have you seen your neighbor? We heard he's missing. It's his name is George Contos. They're looking for him. um, And he's like, yeah, he's a really great guy. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Haven't seen him in a few days. And then a few days later, he decides to pick up this phone call and call and say, hey, by the way, um, since you guys are doing this, my ex-girlfriend, not even my current girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend is missing.
1: Yeah. All right. That is so (laughs) bizarre to me. Yeah. (laughs) Did they ever find uh, his neighbor?
0: They didn't find George Contos, so they found his car about two weeks later in a parking lot, Uh, and it turns out that they have two suspects that hasn't gone to court yet. Of course, with the pandemic, everything's been pushed out, but it seems that he had a handyman that worked on his trailer in that local area, and that handyman was there daily kind of convincing him um, that he knew about this great truck deal he could buy because Contos had just sold property. And so had had this like cash amount of $25,000 and he was looking to buy a truck. And this handyman had heard all this. So he's like, Hey, you know, I can get you set up with this guy that'll sell you the truck you want. They assume that that guy and his stepson actually ended up murdering pontos and taking his money. So doing a false setup for this truck.
1: So it it actually is the case just by coincidence. His neighbor is missing. He's, just you know canvassed he's part of the canvas of the neighborhood he's he's asked and he's asked by reporters and and we really do think that that's what sort of jogged his memory
0: that's the only thing we can think of because what else what else would make you decide that day to pick up the phone
1: right okay so why wouldn't he and i guess there's so much to unpack here like why why would he wait so long and um i had a question from earlier that I, I I want to make sure I don't forget what was the origin of her getting into, um, this lifestyle, this, you know, in and out of rehab, um, using drugs, not using drugs. And you said, what was she, was she part of the sex working community?
0: She was. So, you know, and that, that one was a hard one for Sherry and Jessica to kind of struggle with, like, do we bring this out? Like we want to be honest, but are they gonna, are they going to look at her any different because Sherry knows who her mom is. And she's not scared of that. She doesn't judge her for that. She doesn't judge anybody for that. And she wanted people to know that she doesn't judge people for that. But she also didn't want them to judge her mother without getting a chance to know the story. But going back to just kind of how she got into it, we, we interviewed Rose, which is uh, Sh- uh, Diane's mother and Sherry's grandmother. She was kind of in and out of the kids' lives. So Diane's parents were married till about 12. Um, so far from the under the story that we understand from both of them, they got divorced for reasons that they don't want to talk about. Neither one of them will admit why they got divorced. They say that it's not something that they're going to talk about. It's not something they're going to bring up and that we just need to respect that we've stopped digging, but quickly after their divorce and before it's even final, David has already moved in with another woman and her children. So we can kind of see where that went. Now he did leave Uh, Diane and her two younger brothers back home with Rose after the first divorce. And it seemed like they leaned on Diane to do everything after the divorce, watch the kids, make the meals, take care of them, make sure they're doing good in school. And now they, when they both look back, they think that they may have put too much on her and asked too much of her. And so she began to rebel. She started sneaking boys in her room. She started doing drugs at 12, very, very young age. I think she just, like her, not only did her world blow up, but they put everything on her and almost made her feel responsible for that world blowing up. Um, And Rose is a very, she's more like, well, the kids eventually left and went with David. They didn't pick me. They don't love me. If they, you know, they chose him. So I chose not to be in their lives anymore kind of person. And I think that broke Diane in a way too. Like her mom was like, okay, if you're going to go live with him, well, then you don't get me. You don't get to have me. And I think that really broke her.
2: It sounds like Sherry has done a lot of digging with police reports too. Did she file a lot of FOIAs and things like that?
0: She did. She did a lot, lots and lots and lots of digging. She got uh, reports from other friends too, I guess, that had done some digging for her, which was nice. When we set up the website, we started to just get an influx of paperwork and email to her. So she did a lot of that side. Um, I would say, you know, it's your mom. I want you to go through whatever you want on the podcast and whatever you want to put out there. Uh, I didn't, there were some police reports. She didn't want me to see that she still doesn't want released out there yet. Um, some of her mom's behavior got very erratic towards the end and she hasn't decided if she's ready for the whole world to put those pieces together. I haven't even seen those reports. Um, so I know she's still struggling with that. I think she's struggling with how erratic her mom's behavior did get towards the end of at least where we knew where she was. But there are piles of police reports. Um, she was getting arrested constantly and she was not only getting arrested under Diane T. Francis, but she was getting arrested under Kimberly T. Foreman. Same birthday, same description, same, and when you find the mugshots, it's it's Diane. But how this Jacksonville Police Department who was constantly arresting her did not put together that she was using this alias for over five years And they never charged her for lying to the police ever about her identity. So we had to dig through not only Diane T. Francis police reports and, you know, medical history, jail history. But we had to dig through Kimberly T. Foreman's reports, too, and find her.
1: What was the significance of that name?
0: So she was dating a foreman for a long time. We really think that they were kind of running this prostitution scam together so she would sometimes meet the guy and then she would say oh you know she would find the john then she would tell the john well i need you to take me to a gas station so that i can get a drink or something like that she would have then go into the gas station run out the back door already have the money from the john and then foreman would take her somewhere so they believe that there was this i mean we can't completely say that is what happened but everything we break down that's what it comes to sometimes we get the truth from foreman sometimes he has a different story you kind of have to take everything that foreman puts out there and go okay let me find the truth in this mess because at one point he says he didn't know she was in prostitution and in other times he said well we used to run these scams so it's like okay what what is it then you don't know you did know it depends on the day
1: where is uh, this information coming from is, it, is this uh, coming from direct interviews?
0: This is coming from Sherry having conversations with Foreman. Ah. So she has, and we have them in um, text format on Facebook. So which was nice. You know, she was like, you know, talking to him is one thing. Like when I physically talk to him on the phone, but it's nicer when we message, because then I can go back to Tuesday and then scroll to Wednesday and we can see that we have two completely different stories about the last time he was interacting with Diane. And you're like, why? And then Friday, oh, new story. And you're like, okay. So which one of there's truth in there somewhere? But and so we try to find the lines, like the same lines. So we find that the prostitution is always there. We find that they were, you know, living in this cottage for a long time. And so we try to find those things that continuously connect through all those stories and try to pull that information together.
2: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And what about the official investigation? I know you've seen some police reports and uh, kind of feel like I know where this is going, but just curious.
0: No investigation. Absolutely no investigation. So for her to get the detective that she currently has right now, which I don't even know if he's still her detective, but Cogburn. She had called in a few times to the county, Jacksonville, uh, Duval County, where she was last seen and tried to report her missing herself. They laughed at her and hung up the phone. They did not take her serious. They would not make a report. Nobody would take her information. So the way I guess she got Cogburn was she was on the NAMAS website and she saw a doe that could be her mom. So she called the uh, detective, I guess, assigned to that case. And they were able to file a missing report based on the fact that she might be connected to that doe. But it took her, I don't know, the roundabout way that she made it happen. She was like, I, they almost had to dupe information to connect it together and get her on, first of all, to get her DNA to go into NAMIS so that she can compare. And we've been waiting on a comparison for three does now for almost a year. And Cogburn just keeps, you know, he'll, she'll check in every once in a while and Cogburn will say, well, I still waiting. There's no movement. Where do you want me to go interview? Who do you want me to go talk to? Like you have to, you have to bring us something. So basically we have to do the job. We have to find something big enough to bring him. That's worth researching. Everything we've brought him isn't enough.
1: So I wonder what is enough for the Palm Bay police department when families and friends are begging. Like, is that, that's, that's not enough.
0: I don't understand how, and I'm not sure which police department she went through in Jacksonville because it's so big. I know that Diane stayed in a 15 mile radius. So all the addresses that we have found, and we've researched these down to the addresses she was in, the hotels she would stay at, the people she would stay at, they're all within a 15 mile radius. And she's within this 15 mile radius for over seven years. And then she's just gone there's no reason to not look for her. You can't tell me that's not reason enough that she was in this area seven years. She never left it. She was in this 15 mile radius and she just vanishes a night after your officers arrest her on a trespassing charge at a hotel, which your officers have arrested her multiple times under at that same hotel, those local officers know her. So we can't go then go to them and say, okay, well, We're not seeing her. You're not seeing her. You're not arresting her for trespassing or fighting or, you know, being on the street corner. You're not picking her up anymore. Aren't you concerned as to where she went?
1: Yeah, that is that is really frustrating. And um, I'm wondering if there is a a timeline that you have come up with that is uh, as close to accurate as, as you think, because you said that she was arrested the night before.
0: Yeah. So November 27th, uh, 2005, she is arrested at a hotel that she's already been told she can't be at. So she's arrested for trespassing. And on the police report, it says that she is with her husband who is asking to remain anonymous and not be listed on the report. So she's never been married. So the fact is, you know, after me and Sherry have talked about it and thought about it, Sherry believes that it's, you know, either Foreman or Boggs, that was hanging out with her and they just didn't want to get in any more trouble. You know, one of the ex-boyfriend triangles that she was in, um, or it was a John who chose not to be listed, which would make a lot of sense too. But when they didn't list anybody, we don't know who she was with or that last person she's with. She's arrested. They take her, they hold her overnight. They release her in the morning. And that is the last time she's ever rested, seen, anything. And then we have this phone call that they think is around 2006 from her to her father's house and her father's longtime live-in girlfriend, Rita, picks up the phone. And she states that Diane was really upset, saying she was very sick and she needed money. And it was around Thanksgiving 2006. But that's the last phone call.
2: Okay. And, and the thought is that that was Diane?
0: That's the thought that it was Diane, but nobody can really confirm that story. Rita's having a harder time. I mean, you are asking an elderly lady years later about this phone call and they think it was around 2006 and Thanksgiving. And that's where Sherry reasonably gets frustrated. What do you mean? You think the last time you heard from your child is I I would think that date would be burnt into your head.
1: Yeah. Especially if it's almost, almost exactly a year later, right? Because it was November 20th of 2005. So if this was in 2000, you know, maybe around Thanksgiving of 2006, uh, six, I mean, that's yeah, like, here. it's it's almost, it's a, like most parents of missing people have that date, like you said, burned in their mind. Like it's around the holiday season. They're having a, a Thanksgiving without their child. They should probably know, and remember if their child called,
0: correct? Right, like that's just it would be burnt into your head.
1: Did they? Did they call the police after? I'm sorry no. if I missed that part. No, they didn't.
0: They, they've never. They've never called the police. They've never reached out for. I mean, her dad has made these flyers, and every year on her birthday, he puts them out, and he will share them on Facebook occasionally. But then he doesn't want to talk about it, and he doesn't want to talk about why he doesn't look for her or why he didn't do anything further um and it's interesting because he he's an amazing writer he's actually in the middle of writing this book about growing up in world war ii and it's a great read not gonna lie it's an amazing book um i kept telling sherry to have him send me more pages because i wanted to understand this father who wrote this beautiful testimony about his daughter about all he wanted was this little girl and he named her Diane after this song in this, uh, the 70s. that was really popular called Diane Smiles. And it, he prayed for a little girl. And when he got his little baby die-die, he called her. He, was, she, he gave her anything she wanted. You know, they, they were the extreme opposites. Rose was the one that was in charge and had to, you know, be the one that laid down the law. And David was like, well, whatever my baby girl wants, I'm going to give my baby girl anything. She wants to stay out for hours. I don't want to upset her. I'm going to let her go out at 12 and hang out as long as she wants, cause I don't want to upset her. I want to give her whatever she wants would do anything for her yet. You're not looking for her. And I don't want to judge someone's emotional capability when their child is taken. I can never put myself in those shoes. I would never want to be in those shoes ever, but I don't understand how you didn't go look for her.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm having a hard time processing that too. Do you think that it's possible that he just doesn't want to know the answer?
0: There's a big part of me that thinks that because I need to put his testimony up on my website. I've read it a few times. I've tried to record it a few times to do a podcast update, but it just doesn't sound right coming from me. I I've, I've, think I've talked my husband into reading it for me because he does his own podcast too, and he's got that great voice, but he's also a father, and I think it would really emote this beautiful emotion. Because you read it and then I go, I wonder if his heart just cannot handle, like if he would just rather sit and pretend things are okay because he physically cannot handle that something could have happened to her. Because at this point, that has to be the answer. I mean, I know that Sherry's holding on to hope that she's out living another life. Maybe she got remarried, she had other kids. And I'm holding out on that hope too. I want her healthy and somewhere else. And I know she also holds on to the hope that maybe she's just in a homeless camp and she can't get a hold of anybody and doesn't know anybody's looking for her, you know, because she's found her way here and they don't have social media, they don't have access. It's not like they know someone's looking for them all the time. So she's hoping in a lot of ways that that's what's happening. But she had a mom that would break out of rehab and break the rules of foster care restrictions to come see these kids, try to kidnap them in the middle of the night, would write them all the time, would call her mother every six months, even though if she didn't have a great relationship with her mother, she called in every six months and checked in with Rose. It was like clockwork. She would always call. She would write these children, her children, these beautiful letters with all these drawings and it all just stops. Why?
1: Is there anything on record that indicates she was being abused or maybe she had contacted police to say that she was being stalked or, or anything that would indicate maybe um, something was leading up to this or escalating to something violent.
0: We didn't see anything on record. As far as that goes, I do have um, Sherry stating that these men that he, she picked were abusive. They were abusive and violent with her all the time. Now we do have police reports from earlier with Foreman and, um, Boggs and schmidt you'll find police reports where child services did have to come in or police were called because i believe it was foreman who was trying to choke her mother out and the girls jumped on his back when they were four and three with their little tiny baby fists and punched on him as hard as they could to get him off of her which got him to stop long enough for her to get them in the bathroom and sneak them out a window while they climbed down a tree to the police coming And then, when the police showed up, though, and they said, Well, what happened? The neighbors called that there was this domestic abuse. Diane's all bloody and sitting in front of her, and she goes, I'm fine. Things are fine. I'm okay. And that's when they have to pull the kids aside and go, Okay, what has happened here? Like, he almost choked her out, almost left her for dead. And these babies had to help her. They watched her get thrown across the room before all that. And just beat up so many times. Like she, they said that she would find always find these men that just like to beat on her, and she would always take it because at least they had a roof over their heads.
1: Uh, it's too bad. I mean, you're unfortunately you're it's it's Diane. You know, today it's somebody else. Tomorrow it's all so similar. It's all the same story. This that desperation that that just you know breaks your heart.
2: Do you know what serious health conditions Diane might have suffered from?
0: I believe she said that she was having an issue with one of her legs, that she was going to lose a leg, but she didn't dive into that. So the only thing we can think of is maybe from the alcoholism, the diabetic. It's the only thing we can really tie into it. You have a lot of alcoholics that do have diabetic issues and will lose limbs and continue to drink. So that is kind of the only thing that we think possibly might have been wrong, but there's no medical records. Um, there's no police reports of her having like a limp or having some, you know, sometimes they notate that stuff. It's rare, but we, we kind of looked for that too. And we don't see that. They wonder if it, it was a story for her to get money. It's kind of, it, you never really know with Diane where, what, what she's telling you and where it's coming from. If
1: it's true. How often do you speak with Sherry?
0: Um, We haven't talked in the last few months. It's been kind of hectic on both of our ends. I think the whole world has been hectic on everybody's ends. Uh, So it's been a while since we checked in with each other. Last time I checked in with her, she had just started a new job. So she was going to be super busy. We've been trying to do an update and get more information out there, but we just have not been able to connect.
1: And is there any... um research that you've done where you're maybe triangulating on a solution? Do you have anything? I don't want to say like, what's your theory? Because I, I feel like you're, um <laughs> I feel like you're too smart to have, to be like, this is what happened. But right. are you, are you honing in on something?
0: As much as it breaks Sherry's heart and Jessica's heart is I'm really waiting to, for this information on, especially one of the Jane Does that match her height her weight, her age, the area. I mean, she it's within the 15 mile radius that we're always searching. This doe believe is a death of an overdose. So it's, it's, there's two does, I believe that are death possible overdose deaths that where I really, I, I could see it going that direction. Um, I could see I could also see her maybe in a homeless camp. Maybe she really has lost everything and that's where she is, you know? Um, But I feel like there's more going on with a few of, with the boyfriends because they, they kind of cover each other's stories and then like one, they'll be on each other's side, but then they'll be against each other. They'll be like, no, he's lying. He's lying. And they're like, no, no, just kidding. We're all good now. He's not lying. Um, And you're just, it's it, when you're reading through these messages that you're getting from them. It's like sometimes they're on each other's side, sometimes they're against each other, and you just you don't even know what to do with the information. It's like a bunch of puzzle pieces that are all scattered on the table, and you don't you don't have the picture to start with. You just have a bunch of pieces, and you're like, okay, well, how do these fit?
1: I hate that metaphor. I hate that you just said that metaphor. It gave me anxiety that yeah. you have a bunch of puzzle pieces, but you don't have the picture to even start yeah. from. So you you have to just look at each individual piece and just trial and error it.
0: Exactly. And it's, and and that's what it's continuously been. And we have people coming in from her past, you know, Diane had a a baby when she was 15 and that baby, um, unfortunately she lost that baby. It was a quick childbirth that came before she's ready to go to the hospital. I guess the baby fell and hit its head and it was a tragic, tragic loss for her at 15. We don't know who the father is. It will not be talked about. No one will talk about it. They don't even like to, the the young girl's name was Stephanie. They named her Stephanie. They don't even like to talk about her. She was born in 1985. They glaze over it. Nobody wants to talk about who the father could have been, what Diane was going through. And they said that Diane didn't even want to deal with it when it happened. She didn't want to have a service. She didn't want to have a grave. She didn't want, she just wanted to move on. And so it's like this family thing that everybody refuses to talk about. And we don't even know who the dad is, and we have a million rumors of who it could be. But most of them are dead now due to their own overdoses. We are still struggling ourselves to understand this story.
1: And you know, like the hardest part of it is that is is that you you've taken on this uh, the story that, like you said, is like a scattered puzzle, and and it's not easy to piece together. And it's it's got all of these like elements of. Unsavory unsavoriness um, and uncomfortableness and and just real, you know, dark places. And it, it's not it's not like a cookie cutter, uh, unsolved mysteries, fun mystery, fun missing person, uh, I'm gonna get creeped out a little bit. It it really shows something horribly wrong with a with a, a section of, of society that just forgets about people like this. And right. And and good for you for taking this on, because it's not easy. It's a it's a difficult, difficult uh, road to, to navigate.
0: Thank you.
2: And I want to add, I don't think you have all the pieces, too. And it's not your fault or Sherry's fault, but you're no. looking at a puzzle with pieces, and you don't have every piece, which makes it worse.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: It's probably three puzzles.
0: Oh, it's. Uh, Sherry likes to say, it's like, if you took rainbow noodles and you threw them in a bowl and you're like, okay, find the first color and find out where it starts. And it's like, because we do have all these amazing pieces and some of them are useless. Like we've spent all this time and now we have some useless pieces. And then we have some pieces that we still have to verify, but we're two people that we're not police. This isn't our job. We're not supposed to be the ones that are like, can you please, please, please go interview this person. That shouldn't be our position.
1: So, if you have any call to action at the uh, conclusion here, what would that be? I know that there's a GoFundMe, and I know that on your um, on your website and and on the blog on investigationsforthemissing dot org, if anybody has anything to contribute to this for the uh, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, um, did you want to give some of those some of the details there? And is there anything that's not listed out there that you'd like to uh, put here as a call to action?
0: Definitely, um, reaching out to Palm Beach and letting them know that. Diane matters. You're interested in, you know, the progression of this case. Uh, You want to know why there isn't more things done. Sharing uh, Diane's story, period, in any form or format. I don't care if it's a snapshot with her face, just getting her face out there in the community, because if she is still in these homeless camps or she's still you know in prostitution someone might recognize her someone might see her maybe we did miss something maybe she is in another state and we don't know it so the more that people share her face and for people to just drop that nastiness that comes with this part of the case like we know who diane was and is she's a human She's a human that is loved by two girls that desperately want their mother. That's it. And they will love her and take her exactly as she is.
1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void. We're prohibited
2: by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.